0: via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast platform of choices is, go to spyscape.com/spyscape plus for details. Welcome to the 100th episode of True Spies. From the team at Spyscape and Copper Nozzle Productions, thank you for listening.
1: Incoming transmission) Morgan.
0: Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies.
1: Some might say what we were doing was unsportsmanlike, that it was based on deception, that it was underhand. Well, anyone who has seen the carnage of a German submarine attack on civilian shipping will know there is nothing gentlemanly about submarine warfare. That no, we simply set a trap and used ourselves as debate.
0: This is True Spies. Episode 100. Q followed by you. How do you counter new military technology when the enemy already has the upper hand and knows it? One strategy is to use their own confidence against them, to lure them into a false sense of safety, and then to strike.
1: Well, it was a curious dance, bullfighter and bull, with ourselves posing as uh, as prey until the very last moment, and no guarantee of survival for either party.
0: In World War I, Captain Gordon Campbell was part of a secret British project to combat Germany's powerful U-boat submarine fleet in the Atlantic. A project based on disguise and deception.
1: It's been years since I thought of any of this, but I, I haven't forgotten. Quite the contrary.
0: Now could I? The following is a recreation inspired by Campbell's memoirs, and the writings of others involved in the campaign. His words are spoken by an actor, but the events described are absolutely real. June the 7th, 1917. The North Atlantic, southwest of Ireland.
1: There's a curious sense of calm that always descends on a ship in situations like this. The crew waiting as one for the order to act.
0: In thick fog and heavy seas, Captain Campbell's boat, the Pargust, has been struck by a torpedo from a German submarine, U-boat UC-29.
1: I remember peering out through one of the hidden spy holes on the bridge and trying to get a read on on the damage we'd already suffered. The blast had blown a fairly sizable hole in our starboard side. Splinters of a lifeboat and the remains of parts of the boiler room were sprayed around our upper decks. The engine room was gone. We were immobilized, dead in the water. We were already listing, uh, tilting, noticeably. There was every chance we were sinking. Naturally, this was exactly what I'd been waiting for, hoping for, for months.
0: From the outside, the Pargus appears to be an unarmed British merchant ship, crewed by civilians, carrying supplies to the south coast of Britain. Exactly the kind of target a German submarine most hopes to find in these waters. Valuable, harmless, and now crippled by a hit to the stern.
1: I started belly crawling across the floor of the bridge from spy hole to spy hole. Uh, You know, it's quite tricky when there's a a, a tilt like that. From my position, I could see some of my crew already at their post.
0: The Parkhurst is not what it seems. Hidden around the ship is a formidable arsenal. A four-inch Mark IV naval artillery gun, concealed on the poop deck. Four 12-pounder naval guns hidden along the sides of the vessel. Elsewhere, there are machine gun nests and torpedo tubes. All manned by a battle-hardened Royal Navy crew, keeping silently out of sight.
1: Damn proud of them, actually.
0: Hell. This is what's known as a Q-ship, the letter Q chosen because of their base at Queenstown in Ireland.
1: So then all we had to do was wait. Wait to see if our disguise could tempt the enemy into dropping his car.
0: All that firepower can only be used if an enemy U-boat chooses to surface within range. Something a sub will only do if they are sure a battle is over.
1: We'd seen the periscope about... 50 yards off the starboard side, giving us a thorough inspection, but then it vanished, he dived. And now, not a sign of him, in any direction. I knew the tilt was getting steeper, odds and ends were starting to uh, slide across the floor. I had to remind myself to breathe.
0: There's nothing stopping U-29 from finishing the job safely. A second torpedo strike from medium range. Except torpedoes are expensive. And submarines prefer to know the full details of the cargo ships that they sink.
1: And then it happened. At 8.26 AM off our port side, just 50 yards off, a great, grey conning tower rose out of the waves. Water pouring off it. Sleek, curved, painted with the Kaiser's cross. The whole thing looked like some kind of strange sea creature. I crawled over to the voice tube and gave the order. Stand by, stand by, stand by.
0: You haven't heard the last of the Parkhurst. But for now, let's jump back to 1914.
1: Well, this all came about because I was concerned I wouldn't really see much action in the war.
0: At the start of World War I, Gordon Campbell is a young lieutenant in command of a Royal Navy destroyer protecting ports on Britain's southern coast keen to make his name. The problem is, there isn't much chance to do so. German warships rarely make an appearance in these waters.
1: It was pretty maddening, to be honest with you. Often we would be, uh, we would be escorting our troops over to the continent, uh, knowing the extraordinary challenges they faced, and there was nothing more for us to do than patrol up and down. I'd put in my papers to be sent anywhere in the world where I might have more of a chance of getting into a bit of a scrap.
0: And one day, he receives a call from the Admiralty. His request has been noted. Not a posting to the Middle East or Asia, but something else. Would he be interested in taking on special service?
1: No more detail than that. I did know I'd be serving under Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey. Bailey had a, a a challenging reputation, which was all to the good.
0: Around this time, it is becoming clear that Britain's military leadership has miscalculated badly in its preparations for the war at sea. While the Royal Navy is still the strongest in the world on the surface, little thought has been given to combating the new technology of submarines.
1: remarkable, But I, I think at the beginning of the war, we simply didn't consider the submarine to be a major threat. No one thought that they might do far more harm than any of the German warships.
0: The Royal Navy is able to keep the German surface fleet mostly blockaded and trapped in their ports. But it is almost unable to counter the threat from German submarines hunting British civilian shipping. As the war goes on, the losses begin to mount up. Hundreds of thousands of tons of shipping every month in early 1915. Shipping that includes the raw materials for the war effort and the food needed to keep Britain from starving. But Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey has a radical new idea that might go some way to turning the tide.
1: I knew he was a man who could be, let's say, formidable if crossed. But I also knew he was a superb military tactician, and I was keen for a new start.
0: If you've heard of the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II, when German U-boats also faced off against British and American shipping, some parts of this story might be familiar. In some ways, history did repeat itself. But in the early years of the First World War, the balance was firmly in the favor of the submarine.
1: The anti-submarine tools that are now familiar—hydrophones, sonar echolocation, anti-submarine nets— they were all in their very early infancy, or not present at all. At first, we didn't even have depth charges. Submarines were almost
0: invincible. Behind the scenes, there is a growing sense of desperation as the Royal Navy casts about for countermeasures. At one point, the use of trained sea lions as submarine detection devices is even considered. It was believed that sea lions might be able to detect the sound of a U-boat engine underwater and could be conditioned to alert their handlers. A group of circus-trained sea lions are hired by the Royal Navy and given intensive training in swimming pools in Glasgow and London. Sadly, the marine mammals fail to perform their patriotic duty in open water and released back to the circus in disgrace. So, by comparison, the special service plan that Admiral Bailey has in mind for Captain Campbell is not that far-fetched. It was all very hush-hush.
1: I went to his office at the Royal Naval College at Greenwich and was quizzed at some length um, about my thoughts on the submarine threat, the risk to shipping, and ways in which we might respond. He called what we faced an entirely new method of warfare, which seemed right to me. No, he never put my mission in writing, or even spelled it out explicitly, but i quite quickly cottoned
0: on. Campbell is not alone. Across Britain, dozens of captains and crews are being reassigned to Q-ship projects.
1: A few weeks later, I was posted to Devonport and taken to the quayside to see my new ship. I have to say, when I first laid eyes on her pulling into port, my heart... Sank an ancient old thing, civilian collier, a coal ship, who had seen decades of service around the world. Her name was the Loderer, a tramp steamer who could barely manage eight knots. Absolutely filthy inside and out.
0: Campbell's task to transform the Loderer into a secret killer. Oh,
1: but of course, as I soon realized, if I felt she lacked the appearance of a man of war, so would the enemy
0: the Loaderer's reinvention begins.
1: I was given a great deal of latitude by Bailey, as I believe all the Cubot captains were. There was no textbook to follow. It was up to us to decide uh, how a job like this was done. My first step was to fumigate and completely clean the interior, much needed, bring it up to naval standards. But only the interior. The exterior we kept in its rather (laughs) weather-beaten, sea-worn state. Then I got hold of a nice 12-pounder, 1,800-weight gun, the kind of thing that was standard on a destroyer. needs a crew of four or five to operate. Not what anyone would want pointed at their sub.
0: That's 1,800 pounds worth of gun and 12 pounds of ammunition, about five and a half kilos per shell.
1: We also had two smaller 12-pounders, some rifles and a Maxim machine gun for anti-personnel purposes. A few primitive depth charges, too, but in those days, you couldn't rely on them. Later, I was able to finagle even more deck artillery by slightly uh, unorthodox methods. The point was, we needed to be able to deliver a knockout blow at the start of any encounter. We knew any submarine would dive within seconds of us opening fire.
0: It's a pretty impressive arsenal for a tramp steamer. The problem is how to hide it. So that's where
1: the artistry began. We needed, essentially, to retain every outward appearance of a civilian ship at the same time as being able to deploy all our uh, firepower at a moment's notice. And we'd studied the habits of the enemy.
0: German U-boat tactics early in the war followed an established pattern. To attack unarmed cargo ships, they would surface at close range and give a warning shot with their deck gun, a small artillery piece carried on the top of the submarine.
1: Yes, that, that was the signal for the target ship's crew to take to the lifeboat's an abandoned ship. Now, that might sound quite merciful, but bear in mind, this was generally the middle of the Atlantic in an open boat with no signaling equipment. Now, a lot of the time, that's a slow, cold death
0: sentence. Once the ship was abandoned, the U-boat commander would attempt to seize the ship's papers, the documents listing its name, history, and cargo either by boarding or by searching the lifeboats. The final step? Explosives would be placed on the ship to sink her, or the submarine's deck gun would be used to deliver a death blow.
1: What we realized was that they avoided firing torpedoes whenever possible. Quite obvious why. The same for our subs too. A torpedo is a very expensive and sometimes quite temperamental piece of kit, and you can only... Uh, carry a handful with you. So the deck gun was your U-boat's weapon of
0: choice at all times. The problem with the deck gun, and this whole strategy, is that it requires the submarine to surface to give up the protection of the sea. That weakness was what General Bailey's project aimed to exploit.
1: The entire point was to convince a U-boat that there was no longer a need to remain submerged and at a distance. If we removed every shred of concern that we presented a danger, he'd drop his guard. And then we'd let fly. Now, of course, none of our weaponry would be of any use if it couldn't be completely hidden from the enemy. Uh, To hide the main 12-pounder, we designed a sham wooden engine house on the top deck, complete with walls, a roof, uh, and windows. And then by pulling on a single wire, the whole of the top half would instantly fold away, allowing the gun crew an almost complete field of fire. The same wire also raised the Royal Navy's white ensign, declaring our identity as a British warship. We only raised that at the moment of attack. The Maxim machine-gun nest was hidden by (laughs) an actual nest, a chicken coop in front of the funnel. Again, collapsible through pulleys and wires. The other big guns were hidden on either side of the main deck, behind special wooden panels that could be dropped on hinges with a pin. The crew would have to first aim uh, through spy holes. We built a a whole warren of uh, trapdoors, and internal gangways. They allowed the men to reach their battle stations without being seen from outside. My idea was that in a heartbeat, the entire ship could transform from hunted to hunter.
0: The loader also needs a crew.
1: Well, it was an unusual posting for the officers and the men. Because of that, it called for some very unusual qualities. On the first morning we were gathered together, I explained to them what we were about and that this would be the kind of posting that they wouldn't find anywhere else in the Navy. And that above all, the success of our mission depended on their individual discipline and vigilance. Anytime we were at sea, we might be under observation by the enemy. One man's mistake could jeopardize our whole
0: disguise. The training is intense. Daily drills, shooting practice, disguise inspections.
1: A daily routine. Using floating targets to simulate a U-boat conning tower. We got it so we could aim, drop our disguise, and deliver an accurate broadside in minutes. I knew that I was placing unusual demands on the men. Some thrived and some very fine sailors found it wasn't for them. The... uh, the moral strain of disguise and constant readiness but those who remained became the finest fighting force i ever knew
0: october 1915 the Loderer leaves port on its first hunt armed and equipped and promptly sinks
1: well that was the rumor we couldn't be sure if the Kaiser had ears at Devonport and might have got wind of what we were planning. But much better for any stories about a submarine hunting collier to go straight to the sea floor. It wasn't easy for the men, actually. Some of their families heard the story, and they... Stan They thought they had been lost. So that was hard to reckon with.
0: Once at sea, the Lodera is reborn as HMS Farnborough. Although, of course, it never carries that name openly.
1: Well, each day we would decide the part that our vessel would be playing that day. So, uh, a timber merchant, a food ship, a passenger boat, uh, and plot a plausible route for us to travel based on the reports of U-boat activity. We'd then adjust our outward appearance to make a tempting target. Sometimes we'd sprout an extra funnel. I'd packed collapsible masts to allow us to transform into an entirely new class of vessel, or we might repaint the funnels overnight. Although painting the ship in the dark on an ocean swell was not a popular task with the men. None of this was frivolous. We knew the U-boats were staffed by experienced merchant seamen, and those men would spot if the slightest detail was off.
0: And at all times, the disguise must be maintained.
1: The appearance of the men on deck was closely managed. Only a few at a time were permitted up top during daylight and always in plausible civilian clothing. Some merchant ships at that time allowed the master to travel with his wife, and for that reason, One of the lookouts would often be dressed in women's clothing during his watch, pushing a pram up and down the deck. During drills, it was quite a sight to see what seemed to be a very proper young lady suddenly abandoning her baby and manning the Maxim machine gun.
0: The waiting begins. One month, two months, three months go by, cruising the Atlantic sea lanes without any interest from the enemy. And then, in March 1916, a lookout spots something on the horizon.
1: Well, it was lying very low in the water. Very hard to be certain at that distance, so I ordered a strict observation kept on it. And sure enough, it vanished. Only a sub could do that.
0: HMS Farnborough's preparations are about to be tested for the first time.
1: I could tell my men were electrified with excitement and nerves, but everyone knew their part, knew their place. Below deck, they got to their battle stations, checking the weapons, the pumps, just as we'd practiced. Of course, outwardly, nothing in the ship's appearance changed. We looked the ideal target. I used to say, I know how uh, cheese in a mouse trap feels.
0: For 20 minutes, nothing happens. Is the enemy suspicious?
1: Well, then the lookout saw it. Torpedo approaching. Starboard quarter. So no, that's not what we'd planned for. Not the normal attack. Well, there wasn't time to react. We'd never have turned in time. Thank God the... Uh, Thing passed just in front of us, a miss. We braced for a second shot.
0: But the U-boat tries another tactic.
1: I watched him through the spy hole, an uprush of water, and he surfaced. This was the first time I'd seen the enemy with my own eyes. There were men spilling out of the conning tower to man that evil-looking deck gun in front. But he was still cautious, kept his distance, still too far off for us to be sure of a kill.
0: The U-Boat's deck gun fires warning shots at Varnborough.
1: That was their signal for us to abandon ship. And we had another performance ready for that. We called it the Panic Party, where some of the crew would scramble into lifeboats to look as if the ship had been abandoned. Uh, they were careful not to get into the lifeboats too quickly. We wanted the enemy to get impatient and sail closer. Even so, he kept firing warning shots, but I still needed him a little closer.
0: The U-boat is now closing the distance.
1: He must have been nervous, because he kept firing from the deck gun even before our panic party had left. And I would definitely say, of course, that I was nervous too. I was aware uh, that our own decks were filled with hidden ammunition and explosives. It wouldn't have taken much to ignite. When he was about 800 yards off, that's still further than I would have liked. I gave the signal.
0: The trap is sprung.
1: He dived, of course. But not before we'd got a few broadsides in. I also ordered depth charges dropped on the last spot we'd
0: seen him. The U-boat surfaces again.
1: I knew we had him then. You can see the damage on the hull, And the angle he rose at, one of the 12-pounders got a few more rounds in close range, then he slid under. And we waited a few minutes, and then great bubbles of oil began to appear on the surface, together with bits of wooden wreckage. No survivors. I gathered my whole crew on deck and read a prayer for victory, followed by three cheers for the king.
0: Admiral Bailey is impressed by their achievement. Awards, cash and medals are distributed among the crew.
1: He didn't often give speeches, but once we were back in harbour, he came on board and spoke briefly to the officers and men, congratulating them on a tricky job very well done. I felt we had proved ourselves as a crew and proved the concept of the Q-ship.
0: But the sea war does not go well for Britain. Over the next year, U-boats tighten their stranglehold on British food and supplies. Around a half a million tons of shipping is sunk every month in early 1917. Shortages at home are worsening. It is the closest the country has come to defeat. And German tactics are evolving.
1: Yes, they were learning about our tricks. Word had got out that some of our cargo ships contained a nasty surprise. So it was becoming more difficult to coax the average U-boat commander into attacking. And when they did take the bait, they were less likely to issue a warning shot with the deck gun. More often they would stay submerged and engage with a torpedo first, and obviously that gave us little or or no ability to strike back.
0: Over the next few months, HMS Farnborough is often close to the action, but never gets another submarine in its sights.
1: It felt like the enemy was all around us, but that they were just out of reach. One morning, I remember we watched as an ammunition boat was blown to pieces in a torpedo attack. It was like seeing a volcano explode. Another time, we found a ship carrying maize that had been abandoned by its crew on the orders of a U-boat but had been left uh, just drifting. It's a very eerie sight, but but for some reason, the U-boat steered clear of us.
0: So? Time to evolve with the enemy.
1: There was no additional intelligence I could call on and we were unlikely to be given any more guns. But there was one simple but very hazardous means to increase our chances of success. If the Germans would only surface after firing torpedoes, we would have to learn to take torpedo hits as part of our modus operandi.
0: The risks are huge. A single German torpedo can sink a destroyer. A repurposed civilian vessel like the Farnborough is far more vulnerable. And the hold is packed with weapons and ammunition. Even if the ship survives a hit, there is no guarantee that she will be in any shape to fight a surface battle.
1: Nevertheless, I guess that to to persuade a a U-boat to surface, we would need to convince them beyond any doubt that we were done for. That meant taking a gut punch by torpedo. So I put it to the men. I told them such a policy would inevitably involve loss of life and limb, and perhaps the ship itself. And uh, any man who wished to part with us was quite free to do so. And a few did. And of course, I didn't blame them.
0: February the 16th, 1917. Heading east, 50 miles off the southern coast of Ireland the first tour under the new strategy.
1: During patrols, it it wasn't at all unusual for us to intercept radio communications between U-boats. It's quite a strange, unnerving experience, eavesdropping on enemy, talking to one another. You knew they were somewhere nearby, just below the surface. So on the evening of February the 16th, heading east, our wireless operator alerted me to a conversation between two submarines in the vicinity. We weren't able to break the code But it put me on my guard.
0: Campbell is right to be wary. The enemy are close and watching.
1: It was a beautiful day the next morning. I remember hardly any swell at all. And then at 9.45, I heard from the lookout, torpedo, torpedo, torpedo. But the new strategy is clear. It was from long range, and it felt even longer. Nothing feels stranger than knowing a mortal danger is approaching, to watch it approach, and to do absolutely nothing to defend oneself. Nothing can prepare you for the impact of a torpedo for the first time. We were all braced, but I was thrown clear across the bridge.
0: A great hole has been torn in the Farnborough. One of the bulkheads completely destroyed. Fires break out, then icy water rushes in. Casualties are moved astern. It
1: was ghastly, but discipline-held. And on the outside, the Panic Party played their part, bundling themselves into lifeboats. One man dressed in uniform, as me, the captain. The idea behind that was to offer a tempting prisoner to the enemy, if only they chose to surface.
0: As the water rises, men begin moving to the parts of the ships that are usable but the engine teams and gun crews are forbidden from taking refuge on deck and breaking the disguise. They shift to more and more awkward hiding places below decks as the flooding spreads through the ship.
1: This wasn't like before. This time I knew the Farnborough was dying. It wouldn't be long before our gun positions began to be flooded, Never mind the engine.
0: And the U-boat still remained
1: submerged. Lying on my belly, peering through a spy hole, I could see his periscope approach. They were examining every detail of our vessel, the stern, the Panic Party lifeboats, the piles of sham cargo on deck.
0: At just 10 yards from the Farnborough, the periscope stops and appears to have spotted something.
1: He was so close I could see the whole of his hull just beneath the surface, the periscope scanning back and forth.
0: The U-boat pauses, then moves off and begins to do another circuit of the ship.
1: I was getting reports that we were really sinking. Now, I was tempted to at least fire on his periscope. Little that that would have done.
0: There is another risk here. If the U-boat really believes the ship has been abandoned, it may begin firing more torpedoes just to sink the ship faster.
1: At 10.15, he blinked. At 100 yards out, great, beautiful conning tower appeared. The hatch opened, and I saw the commander standing up looking directly at us. It was the last thing he ever saw.
0: U-boat U-83 was sunk at around 10:30 on the 17th of February 1917, with only two survivors found in the water.
1: One of them perished soon after from injuries and exposure. A brave man.
0: HMS Farnborough has its own problems though.
1: Boiler and engine room had gone. Water levels continued to rise elsewhere in the rest of the ship. Very ominous clankings from across the whole vessel. I put out an immediate message over the wireless to headquarters. Q5, slowly sinking, respectfully wishes you goodbye.
0: Q5 being the Farnborough's Q-ship codename.
1: Perhaps a little dramatic, but I was aware that we were many miles from shore and help might be some time in arriving. And of course,
0: it is known that there is more than one U boat in the area.
1: It was a very hairy situation, no question. And a very, very curious sensation to know that as a captain I might shortly have to abandon ship. A ship that had, of course, served us very well. I gave orders for all confidential papers, code books, charts, and so on, to be destroyed immediately. The ship safe. That went over to side two. I didn't want anything to be found in the wreckage that might aid the enemy. I told the men to prepare.
0: But help does appear. Two British destroyers, HMS Buttercup and Narwhal, arrive on the scene. Farnborough is towed towards land.
1: Initially, yes, that was a great relief. But then during the towing, one of our depth charges detonated of its own accord. And the destroyers, of course, assumed we'd been torpedoed again and abandoned us, without even looking for survivors. We did eventually make it back to port with assistance from another warship. That evening, there were reports that the remaining u boat was, again, heard signalling over the wireless. This time he received no reply.
0: Gordon Campbell is awarded the Victoria Cross for conspicuous gallantry, consummate coolness and skill in command during the action with U-83. Other members of the crew are also decorated. The policy of deliberately taking torpedo hits is adopted by other Q-ships. Admiral Bailey sees Campbell and his crew fitted out with a new ship, HMS Vittoria, also known as Pargust.
1: I missed old Farnborough, of course, but Pargust gave us a chance to learn, uh, to learn from our mistakes. And she was much the same in terms of size and design, a civilian tramp steamer, and we equipped her with many of the same ruses. One theatrical element that I enjoyed was the, uh, the addition of a stuffed parrot in a cage to the Panic Party cast. The idea being that this must be a treasured ship's pet, so the ship must be, must be well and truly abandoned.
0: Pargust sees service in several encounters, including the incident which began this episode. In that attack, after a torpedo hit was sustained, U-boat UC-29 was lured into range of the guns and sunk. Once again, there are only two German survivors. Captain Campbell's final and most challenging engagement of the war takes place with his last u boat HMS Dunraven.
1: She was possibly my favorite ship. See, by this stage in the Sea War, the battle had changed yet again. Merchant ships had begun to be lightly armed against submarine attack, usually with a little two-and-a-half pounder. Too feeble to have much chance of really harming the enemy, but still reassuring to the merchant crews, if nothing else. And this put us in a slightly comical position. Our Q-ship would now have looked suspicious if it were not visibly armed, so we installed one of these uh, potato guns on the poop. There are new gadgets, too. Submarines were becoming ever more careful, more cautious about the risk that they might be engaging a Q-ship, and this required us to become even more inventive in our turn. So I had an ingenious device installed which could release a continuous cloud of steam from the bridge. You just had to open a little valve. The idea being to give the illusion that a submarine had scored a direct hit on our boiler and so convince her that we were crippled. another set of controls allowed me to release clouds of smoke from different parts of the deck to the same end. And of course, beneath, trapdoors, hencoops and collapsible walls lay, as usual, our real arsenal.
0: And here is where Gordon Campbell, VC, may have made a mistake.
1: The Dunraven was the most heavily armed of all the Q-ships I commanded. We even had torpedo tubes. Within the Navy, our previous successes spoke for themselves and... We were able to acquire all the ammunition, the explosives and guns that we could want or fit on board.
0: That proves to be a dangerous decision. On August the 4th, 1917, the Dunraven is sent to patrol the bay of Biscay, north of Spain.
1: Well, we'd had reports of a very active U-boat in the area. The commanders seemed to have a different modus operandi from anything we'd experienced before.
0: U-boat tactics are shifting again. This submarine does not favor torpedoes in its opening attacks. Instead, it uses a more powerful deck gun to conduct long-range shelling on the target.
1: It was not something we'd seen before. It was concerning. In a long-range artillery duel between cargo ship and U-boat, the submarine will have the upper hand just because it's a smaller target. And, of course, better armed and trained in gunnery than most merchant crews. Our chances of uh, success still depended on luring the enemy close and keeping him on the surface. I almost began to miss our days of inviting torpedoes.
0: A few days in, the enemy is spotted on the horizon.
1: We acted as though we hadn't seen him, but continued towards him. And presently, it began. We made a great show of trying to escape his bombardment pretending to run, but not too fast. I ran the engine slow. We wanted him to close the distance. Of course, we then began returning fire with our feeble deck gun. The gun crew showed great bravery, staying on top in the midst of a real bombardment, but also exhibited some really commendably poor, slow shooting as per my instructions. Couldn't um, Couldn't afford to scare the prey off. The rest of the crew found it rather amusing.
0: And so the chase is slowly on. The U-boat begins to follow.
1: Once he'd closed the distance to about a thousand yards, his shells began to land much closer. I switched the artificial steam on and ordered the Panic Party to begin their performance of abandoning ship, stuffed parrot included. Our usual pantomime of surrender was beginning.
0: But the U-boat isn't playing its part. The shelling continues.
1: That shell hit the poop deck where our main gun was stored, along with most of our ammunition and the depth charges. And this was what I was most afraid of. There was a terrific explosion, probably one of the depth charges, and uh, members of the gun crew were blown into the air. Immediately, fires broke out. I was certain that the rest of the ammunition would follow soon and that would be the end for all the men at that end of the ship, and maybe the rest of us too. At the same time, the enemy had ceased firing and was now coming into range of my other guns.
0: What would you do? Evacuate the gun crews before the ammunition could detonate? Or keep at battle stations a few minutes longer to attack the enemy?
1: I chose to wait for the chance to shoot. I thought of the names of all the men on the poop deck. I was quite certain they were doomed. But in battle, you have to make those decisions. The alternative might be to lose every man to the U-boat. I gave the order to stand by for firing.
0: The decision is taken out of his hands.
1: Well, before I could give the order, two more shells hit the deck, destroying more depth charges, which tore the stern apart. Just a a terrific detonation. After that explosion, the enemy, you know, no doubt realizing we were no ordinary steamer, crash-dived. One of my gun crews got a shot in before he disappeared, but that was it.
0: The Dunraven is now on fire and sinking with a hostile U-boat somewhere nearby.
1: Well, it was looking bleak. Every few minutes, more shells and explosives blew themselves up in the fires. So, well, you can imagine the noise and the heat of that. And throughout it all, the gun crews, they remained at their posts. And they were surrounded by piles of ammunition. I moved the wounded to the salon for treatment and considered the situation. Now, the wise thing to do would be to radio to other warships to help. But of course, even then, the U-boat might finish us off before they could arrive. So then I decided to try one last bluff.
0: There is a last resort plan that Captain Campbell has discussed with his crew. The so-called Q abandoned Ship Plan.
1: Well, our Panic Party boat was intended to convince the enemy that we had abandoned the ship and that it was safe to approach. The Q abandoned Ship Plan would repeat that, ruse. Uh, and now that he knew we were a warship, we would make a show of also having the, the gun crews leave the ship. But in truth, they would leave me and two gun crews still on board, ready to fire.
0: The final lifeboats are lowered, and most of the gun crews exit.
1: I lit a pipe and tried tried calming my nerves that way, waiting for his next move. And I didn't have to wait long.
0: A torpedo amid ships, causing more fires.
1: I had a feeling we wouldn't last much longer
0: But then, the U-boat does surface.
1: Directly in front, close range. But in such a position that we no longer had any guns we could bring to bear. He shelled us, solidly, for twenty minutes. Shrapnel tearing through the ship, some landing amongst the wounded men hidden below decks, other hits threatening to detonate, yet more explosives, new fires breaking out around the bridge and the mess. And of course, The men in the Panic Party boats could do nothing except watch the ship sinking lower and lower in the water. But, but, for a moment, he came in line with our torpedo tubes. We fired both, and one made contact. It
0: fails to detonate. It's the last throw of the dice. The Dunraven is defeated.
1: after so many false surrenders, I couldn't expect to be shown any mercy from the enemy. So I sent out a distress call uh, to Allied warships and then went below decks to wait with the injured for the final blow.
0: It never comes. For reasons still not clear, the U-boat never returns. It's possible
1: he was out of torpedoes or that he thought we were done for anyway. It had been a good fight and we'd lost it. But I have more pride in how my crew performed on that day than in any of our other engagements.
0: Later that day, the survivors are picked up by the destroyer HMS Christopher and the Dunraven Sinks soon after. Two Victoria Crosses are awarded to crew members for their actions under fire. Campbell receives a second bar to his distinguished service order. The era of Q-boats is ending. Allied shipping is now escorted across the Atlantic in armed convoys, making them a much more dangerous target for submarines. Campbell disbands his crew.
1: It was a quiet ceremony, with us all gathered together one last time at the barracks. Not much needed to be said. If you've served, you'll understand the significance. The Q-boat was a response to the conditions of the time. It was an era when we had... Little or no means of countering the submarine threat directly. And so we were forced to respond with guile and cunning instead, as any nation has the right to do when faced with a mortal threat.
0: Gordon Campbell was one of the most successful Q-ship commanders of the war, the only one to have had three confirmed kills. Admiral Sir Lewis Bailey later described him as a born leader of men with a wonderful sense of duty to his country. After the war, Campbell served as a Member of Parliament and rejoined the Royal Navy at the rank of Vice-Admiral during the Second World War. His Victoria Cross is still kept by his old school, Dulwich College. The legacy of the Q-ships lives on in other ways. The letter Q became British military code for any project involving deception and disguise. Ian Fleming named James Bond's weapons and gadgets developer Q as a result. If you want to know more about Gordon Campbell and the history of the Q-ships, we recommend his gripping memoirs, My Mystery Ships. We also enjoyed Smoke and Mirrors by Deborah Lake and Q-ships and their story by Edward Keeble-Chatterton while researching this story. I'm Vanessa Kirby.